Welcome to Climate Anxiety and the Kid Question, a podcast that explores climate change, how it impacts our emotions and sense of well-being in the world, and ultimately how we feel about having and raising children in this climate-altered landscape. I'm your host, Jade Sasser. In this episode, I'm talking to Cindy, one of my own former students. Cindy is a young activist who organizes climate cafes in Southern California. She's not sure about kids, but she is sure that in order to address climate change, we have to deal with our own climate emotions. And in particular, we need art and ways of making space for joy. Let's get into it. Thank you so much for joining me today. Of course, I'm happy to be here. Yeah. So can you start off by telling me about yourself, how you identify, anything you'd like to share? Sure. I'm Cindy Pace. I use she, they pronouns and... I'm, I guess that that's me in a nutshell. That's not really me, but those that's my name and pronouns. <laughs> okay. And how old are you? I am 23. I just turned 23 recently, so oh, I have birthday. to remind myself, but thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I'm an Angelino. I'm an environmentalist. I am an artist. I'm a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, well... So on that note, what does being an environmentalist mean to you? And I, I, that's a big question, but I'm, I'm really interested in particular in what being an environmentalist means as someone who's 23 years old in this current moment. Yeah, I think being an environmentalist means a lot of things to a lot of different people. But as a young person, it means fighting for a future that's livable and somewhere that I want to see myself grow as a person. I want clean air. I want clean water. I want a future that feels worth living. Mm -hmm. That's what it means to be an environmentalist, and that's what I'm fighting for. Yeah. And how are you fighting for that? What are your actions that you're taking? <laughs> well, I work at the Resource Conservation District of the Santa Monica Mountains. I grew up in Southern California my entire life, and I'm working on wildfire resiliency up in the mountains since that is a thing that I've grown up with. I, When I was in high school, the Woolsey Fire was or it swept through the Santa Monica Mountains and that has left a really big imprint on me and that's something that I'm working on trying to prepare the communities I grew up in for wildfire and doing so in a sustainable way and an ecologically appropriate way and um making it accessible and less scary because wildfire is so scary. Mm. So that's one thing I'm doing. I also host climate cafes for people in Los Angeles to talk about their climate emotions because I think that emotional resiliency is this prong of climate resiliency no one really talks about. And in order to create sustainable movements, we have to make sure we're paying attention to the emotional side of that as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So you've raised a whole bunch of things that I want to <laughs> jump into, um, but I want to start at the beginning. So the Woolsey fire, 
How old were you when that happened, and why was that such an important moment for you? I was 18. I think the Woolsey fire happened in 2018, so I was a freshly young adult and applying to colleges. It was a really... It was a transitionary phase in my life where I'm trying to figure out who I want to be as a person. And um, on top of that, trying to figure out where I fit into the world. And then the world that I was living in was on fire. Why was that fire so impactful for you? Yeah, I had friends that lost their homes in that fire Hmm. and... I don't live in the wildland urban interface or an area where that's, I don't live in an area that's fire prone per se, but I went to school with people that were affected by the fire and we didn't have snow days off in California, but I had a wildfire day off. And by the time we returned to campus, you could see ash falling from the sky. The smoke and air quality was unlike anything I had seen before. Mm. Um, It felt very dystopic and scary. And it was when I think climate change really materialized for me Mm. as a young person. And it definitely affected how I was planning my future and figuring out what I wanted to do with my life. Mm -hmm. That's a lot for one event. Yeah. Yeah. So you've mentioned scary a few times. Mm -hmm. I wonder, are there other emotions that arose for you during that fire? Or when you think back to that fire, are there other feelings that you kind of associate with it? Yeah, I think I talk about scary all the time. But looking back now, I also felt very, weirdly enough, in community. I saw people in Los Angeles really come together um, during that mega fire. It felt very hopeless. It felt like, is this really the world that we're going to have to get used to? But also, we're together in this, and that was a really beautiful thing, too. So while there was hopelessness and scariness, there also was community. I'm not sure what the adjective of that would be, but... (laughs) Uh, yeah, hope and hopelessness. I, I feel like I live in those contradictions and I'm getting used to being comfortable with that. But mm. yeah, it's a weird dichotomy. Yeah. So I wonder, you mentioned your climate cafe mm-hmm. and that you talk about climate emotions there. How do you make space for people's climate emotions in that conversation? And how do you make space for your own too, whether it's hope, hopelessness, or other feelings that come up? I think my answer is incredibly simple, and it's just making the space at all, because people feel these climate emotions on a daily basis, but rarely do we see, um, rarely do we see people coming together and setting aside and carving out time explicitly to talk about that in community and that's what climate cafes serve as it's it's that practice of community care and 
having open, honest dialogues about the raw and ugly feelings and also beautiful feelings we're all having Hmm. when it comes to the climate crisis. So I wonder, are there any surprising emotions that people share in those spaces? Yeah, I think when I started them out, I was expecting to confront a lot of climate grief, eco-anxiety, and I've I've been struck by how much joy I've seen during these climate cafes and how how being together in that space really brings out this again, sense of community and that we're building these networks of solidarity in such a beautiful way. And and that's been the most surprising thing. I know that was the purpose of the climate cafes, but I was really expecting um, more sadness than I've seen. <laughs> I would expect more sadness too. So it's interesting that joy is a common emotion coming out. Um, I wonder if we can take a step back on that, because when you first mentioned to me that you were doing climate cafes, Mm -hmm. I assumed that these would be info sessions, that you'd be raising awareness, focusing on education, but it sounds like you're not doing that. It sounds like you're more centering climate emotions. How did you come to that focus? Well, Climate cafes are, I don't want to pretend like I came up with them in the first place. They're a model that I want to say was first started by the Climate Psychology Alliance. They they host trainings on climate cafes, and there are also people doing climate circles. So there's a bit of, this isn't a new practice by any means, and I when I'm facilitating these conversations, use that as a guiding principle, use their framework to um, inform the work that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. But the biggest thing for me that I've pulled from their guiding principles is this idea of creating a haven from busyness. Mm -hmm. I think so often when we're having workshops on climate emotions or info sessions and whatnot, there's this direct link to action. And we feel this type of way, therefore, go to this beach cleanup or sign this petition, what have you. And I think that oftentimes that can stifle our emotions and not allow us to fully process the huge range of feelings and conflict and feelings that we're having. So that's been a really great thing in having these climate cafes or climate conversations. You can call it a lot of things, but the core is we're having that dialogue. Absolutely. And I'm really glad that you brought up... um, the way in which kind of the impulse to taking action as sort of an antidote to climate anxiety doesn't necessarily work. Can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, it's it reminds me of 
My mom, when I was growing up, whenever I was feeling kind of sad or gloomy, her immediate reaction was go take a walk, go exercise. And whenever we're feeling down or upset, I feel like whenever we're feeling down, there is this immediate reaction that we need quick fixes and we need solutions. Take an ibuprofen, (laughs) fix the headache. Sometimes we don't need the ibuprofen and we need to just be able to acknowledge and recognize the feeling that we're having Mm. in order to grow from it. Mm. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important insight. I say all the time, Feelings are not problems to be solved. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I really wish that in, you know, because there's a lot of research that is growing and being circulated that focuses on this climate anxiety to climate action moment. And what I find really interesting about that research is that most of the people I know who have expressed eco-anxiety, climate anxiety, you know, distressing climate emotions are in fact already climate activists. Mm -hmm. And so if activism was an antidote to anxiety or other distressing feelings, then no climate activist would feel that way. And that's not the case. Yeah, and not to mention that a lot of times that activism is a pressure cooker for burnout, And you're witnessing firsthand a lot of the symptoms of the climate crisis. Mm -hmm. So it's a really interesting point. So I want to go back to the climate cafe. You mentioned that joy is a common emotion that's expressed there that you would not have previously assumed would be there. And that makes me wonder, who's in the room? Who's expressing joy? Who comes to the climate cafes? I want to clarify that I wouldn't say the joy is in reaction to the climate crisis. It is certainly an emotion I've seen come up in community. This idea of community care, I think, really brings out that joy in people. But... We have different crowds all the time. Sometimes there are more climate workers and we've had climate cafes that are more creatives and poets and artists. And a lot of times I'll see a lot more um, gratitude and joy with that crowd. Hmm. Speaking of which, so I did a recent episode of this podcast with a current student who is a film major. Mm and who worries that his film major, his artistry in general, that it's not really contributing to the fight against climate change, which I was surprised by because I know that I need art to help me move through my own climate emotions um, and to help me balance out the positive with the negative ones. So I I wonder if you have thoughts on the role of art in climate activism. Well, Jade, you know I definitely (laughs) have some thoughts on this. I think that art is such a powerful tool in communicating with people. And I have a science background. I also 
have a political science background. And I think through my journey with academia, I really came to realize that a lot of times people don't want to see statistics telling us what's wrong with the world. They want things that are accessible and digestible. And I think that's the most beautiful thing about art and creativity. It's a way to alchemize all these really complex emotions in a way that's provocative and um, thoughtful and engaging. And I would want to talk to that student and thank him for being being a media major or a film a film major and to make those films about whatever they think is relevant and important and that's how we get people to really bite into what's going on right now absolutely and also to take a break from it like <laughs> I don't only want to watch movies about climate change. You know, I actually need to decompress and be mm -hmm. happy sometimes. And for me, film is one of the things that gets me there, as well as music and, and other forms of art. Yeah. I mean, being exposed to that doom and gloom on a constant basis gets exhausting and has certainly put me in states of absolute fatigue. Mm music and movies has definitely helped with that. So mm -hmm. keep creating art because it helps me. It It's comforting and it's like a little blanket. I need it. Oh yeah, I think a lot of us need it. So I wonder if I can switch gears at this point. Um, I think you know that this podcast is specifically about climate emotions, how we feel about the future and where we see things like creating families or having children within that context. Um, how do you feel about that question? Do you ever think about it? Does it come up? I've thought a bit about it quite a bit, especially since knowing you, I think. <laughs> I, When I was younger, I don't think I ever really thought about having children. I know a lot of my friends have talked about growing up with baby dolls. And as young women, that is certainly something that has been programmed in us. Mm -hmm. I had Barbies. I would just chew on their legs. So <laughs> I, I don't think I had some predetermined nurturing motherly instinct. Although the older I get and the more I work with children, I've done environmental education with kids. I I do feel some type of way about it, mm -hmm. and I, I more and more am confronted with this inner conflict of, can I morally justify having a child in, in a world that sometimes I feel weird about living in? Mm. So it's been on my mind, and I'm still young. I'm, I'm 23, mm -hmm. but... I have conversations about this with my boyfriend and with my best friends all the time. Mm. And it's a really tricky thing to navigate, especially as someone that's studied the environmental sciences. And I understand there's a lot of history behind this idea of um, 
curbing population growth and these neo-Malthusian perspectives. So I don't think that not having a child is my way of reducing carbon emissions, but I don't know if I feel too keen on the idea of raising a child that might not have access to clean air and clean water and mm-hmm. growing up in systems that have failed me mm-hmm. and my communities it feels not very cool of me to do well it's really interesting i'm drawing some connections here in my mind because miley cyrus several years ago, gave an interview in Vanity Fair in which she said really similar words. She said, I can't morally justify the fact that we are handing a piece of shit planet to our potential future children. And until we can promise them that the air will be clean and there will be fish in the water, I don't want to do that. And ironically, she had just lost her home in the Woolsey fire. Mm. Um, And she gave that interview about a year later. I'm curious, with that in mind, as you said, you're 23. Your friends, I'm guessing they're around your age, too. Um, On average, people in the U.S. start having their first children. Average age is 27. So yes, you're younger than that, but you're not so young that it's wildly inconceivable that you would imagine Mm -hmm. Um, having kids. I'm curious, what are your friends saying and how are they feeling about this having kids or not having kids issue? Well, my friends and I can barely afford rent. We don't know if we'll ever own a home in our lifetime. Mm -hmm. It feels weird to start planning for our reproductive futures before we can even account for our own material reality, Mm -hmm. if you will. Mm -hmm. And I am 23. My prefrontal cortex still isn't fully developed. So I completely acknowledge that maybe this will change in the future, this idea that I don't want children, but... Yeah, until I can until I can provide for myself and the people I love, I don't know that I can bring another thing into this world mm-hmm. and provide for it them. Absolutely. That's a it's a really common feeling that I hear from people exactly your age. Um just curious, is this because the assumption generally is about having kids is a biological thing? Does the conversation change if you consider the possibility of fostering, adopting, or some sort of non-biological way of becoming a parent? I think I'd be more... I could probably be convinced about taking care of a non-biological child since it wasn't their choice to be here in the first place and um yeah I could probably be convinced but again it's the idea that I can hardly provide for myself Mm -hmm. and 
having a child is certainly a financial burden of its own. And oh, yeah. I don't know that I could account for it. Mm. So there's that. But when it comes to adoption or fostering, I would be more inclined in that respect because the idea of having my own biological children and bringing something, bringing something, I don't want to, <laughs> bringing a child into the world that didn't ask to be here and in the midst of so much turmoil, The kids that are already here didn't ask for that either and like they need to be cared for as well so mm. I'm more okay with that option yeah and you said you could be convinced of that I just want to make it clear I'm not trying to convince you of anything <laughs> right in any direction you know I I feel like what you want to do with your life whatever future you envision for yourself um is wonderful if you have the tools and resources to make it happen, but we are collectively no longer able to have these tools and resources, including the tools and resources to be excited about the future. Mm -hmm. And for me, that feels like a collective generational injustice. It totally is. And especially for people my age, I think we're at a point in time where all of these systemic injustices feel like they're at a, a breaking point almost. Mm -hmm. Everything feels very intense and exacerbated and the future sometimes doesn't feel too bright. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I wonder, and you don't have to have the answers, but from your perspective, what kinds of things could make the future a place that you're excited about or that you look forward to living in? Well, I'm obsessed with this idea of community care. I'm not sure if it's obvious, but... Um, I take a lot of inspiration from Bell Hooks, and um, she writes about not just Bell Hooks. Bell Hooks and also queer theory talks a lot about this idea of straying away from a family unit, a nuclear family unit of care, creating your own family. And I think, I think coming together as a collective is one of the more human things and fulfilling part of, that didn't make sense. One of the more human and fulfilling parts of my life. Mm -hmm. And that's a future I would want to see, a future that is centered around community rather than capital and money and power and breaking down these hierarchies that we seem to build anywhere we can find it. 
And I think everything else, if that, if community is centered, everything else kind of follows suit, mm. you know? Mm-hmm. I think you're right. I think, um, as you've said, a number of people have been writing about that. Bell Hooks has written, did write about that for a number of decades. Um, queer theorists, queer scholars have long written about chosen family, mm -hmm. chosen kin networks. I think more people are writing about that. People who do disability studies have written a lot about the importance of community and collective care. Um, we've gotten a lot more about that, especially during COVID, as people have really brought the discussion of mutual aid more to the forefront. Um, and I think one of the kind of central things about all of these discussions, which it's so important that now is a convergence point for that, is that the nuclear family model, it's not working. And it is failing people. Um, we can't afford to live in nuclear families. We emotionally don't thrive in them. Children don't thrive in them either. They, they produce this sense of isolation. Um, and I don't think that that's really going to be a viable model moving forward. So, okay, I think we can end there. Thank you so much for joining today. Of course. It's always lovely seeing you. You as well. And I look forward to coming to one of your climate cafes in the future. I have a lot of emotions and I want to share them. Yes, we can talk about it and sip on some tea. It'll be great. Excellent. Thanks so much, Cindy. Thank you. That's our episode and our season. Thank you for tuning in to season one of Climate Anxiety and the Kid Question with me, Jade Sasser. The show will be on hiatus for the summer, but we'll be back in the fall with all new interviews from a wider variety of people, including more parents, a grandparent hopeful, and we'll even have a few high school students in the mix. They have lots to say, and I think you'll want to hear it. So be sure to join us for season two when we'll get into it once more.